0: Yesterday we were talking about um, Isaiah 58, uh, and so the title of this teaching is 58.12. Uh, This is the second part, and yesterday we talked about uh, the actual doing, what, what does Acts 29 actually need to do, like the physical doing, in terms of Isaiah 58.12, and why that is so much a part of uh, a revival, and we spoke about that yesterday. Today we are going to deal with the spiritual part of it. The spiritual part of it. Yeah? So here's the thing we need to realize. So these are certain spiritual realities when it comes to um, a city where a group of people are now engaging in a concerted, deliberate, focused effort to undo things and to bring the uh, presence and the revival of God into a city. It's okay as long as you do it in conferences. You can come for conferences, pray for a city, leave. That's okay. It doesn't trouble the enemy. Because he's been used to that for the last hundred years. He's seen so many conferences where people come, pull down things that perhaps are pulled down, perhaps not. But there's nobody else to follow up. But when a church or a group of churches or a group of people begin to consistently hammer away, at old demonic edifices, that is when uh, the demonic realm or the satanic realm becomes aware of it. And so what we're going to talk about today is a spiritual uh, uh, component of 5812. So, depravity ravages a city, making it inhospitable. Depravity ravages a city, making it inhospitable. And by the way, Uh, God has always had cities in mind and the Old Testament and the New Testament uh, have so many stories that deal specifically with cities the first city that was uh, built I think was called Enoch, I'm not sure I know that's the name of a person but I think Cain built that city Um, um, in the plains of Shinar um, Nimrod built a city Um, Jerusalem was a city that was after the heart of God most of the cities mentioned in the uh, letters to the churches in the book of Revelations were prominent strategic cities from which the gospel went out. So cities have always played a surprisingly prominent role in God's agenda for the earth. Yeah? And uh, therefore, there's always a battle for the soul of a city. One that seeks to have it transformed, the other that seeks to have it decay. But unfortunately in most cases, conferences and short time prayers pull down things. But the thing with pulling down things is if you pull down things and don't build anything else there, then uh, the story from um, Luke kicks in where the very same powers that were driven out come back, find the place swept and empty, and go and gather seven other spirits stronger and come back and the condition of the land is worse off than when it first began. Which is why a concerted effort over a period of two or three years uh, is just um, is just uh, demon rattling. Uh, you know I'm not sensational, but it is, it is true. And now we have to learn how to stay the course. And that's why we need to study the spiritual component of 5812. So depravity, ra- de- the, the intent of the enemy in a city when he brings in forms of depravity is that he knows that depravity ravages a city depravity ravages a city making it inhospitable depravity ravages a city making it inhospitable and if you once a, a city is made inhospitable through depravity its palaces and fortresses its palaces and forts its palaces and forts are run over are run over with thorns, thistles and brambles and it soon becomes the haunt of evil spirits. You see this in Isaiah 34, 13 and 14 where it talks about how, um, let me just go to Isaiah 34, 13 and 14. Isaiah 34, 13 and 14. What we are exposing is the, um, is the is the evil strategy behind uh, depraving a city isaiah thirty four was thirteen and fourteen. Thorns will overrun her citadels or fortresses, nettles and uh, her palaces, nettles and brambles, her strongholds or fortresses. She'll become a haunt for jackals, a home for owls. Desert creatures and hyenas will meet with, or desert creatures will meet with hyenas, and wild goats, or actually the word used is satyrs, S A T Y R S, or the night hag, will also repose and find for themselves places of rest, meaning. The very city that is supposed to be a place where transformation happens now becomes a place that is inhospitable, its palaces and forts overrun with thorns, uh, absolutely ruined, and the haunt of evil spirits. So a concerted effort, a concerted effort is required by the people of God, a concerted effort is required by the people of God To bring desolation or desolate heritages or desolate lands or desolate inheritances back to normalcy. But the desolation, every time you go and try to repair, like it says in Isaiah 58 verse 12, to repair, when you go to try and repair broken down walls, streets that are unsafe to dwell in, uh, ruins, then there is resistance because as it says in Psalm 80 verse 13, The wild boars or the wild pigs of the forest try to ravage and resist your clearing of the thorns, the brambles and the thistles. And that's when the church holy, and I'm very specifically using the words church holy. I'm not just saying church, I'm saying that's when the church holy, that's when the church holy must rise up. Because when the church holy rises up, it opens the ancient doors and gates so that the king of glory may come in to save. And that is what we are at present doing. In our times of prayer, in our times of worship, in our times when we declare, in our times of gathering together, this is what we're doing. The church holy is rising. The church holy is rising. I'm not calling it just the church. I'm calling it the church holy. That is important because if you read Psalm 24, it is required that only the holy that ascend the hill of the Lord have the ability to open the ancient gates and doors so that the King of Glory may come in. I cannot tell you the demand and requirement of holiness of you at this present time. I cannot emphasize it enough. So here are seven practices that enable us to... Here are seven practices. So I kind of let the cat out of the bag. Yes, there are seven points now. Uh, Seven points each with three sub-points and each of the sub-points has four subsets. So that's seven into three, 21 into four is 84. So here are seven practices that will enable us to do what Isaiah 58.12 says we are supposed to do. Seven practices that will help us rebuild, repair, restore. It says you will in Isaiah 58, verse 12, it says you will rebuild on old foundations and you will rebuild the ancient ruins. It says you will repair the breaches, the, break, the, break, uh, the breaks in the walls you will repair. And it says you will be called restorers so that the streets will be safe to dwell in again. Jacob, how can a small church do this? It's not a small church that's doing it, it's a super big God who's doing it. Every time I think small church, I think Church of Philadelphia. You have little strength, but you have kept my word and you have been faithful. That's all it takes for a big God to act. And over a period of two or three years, you will see. Because we will be consistent. Because this is a, this is a commission from God. We have no choice in this matter. We cannot amend it. We cannot move away from it. It's constrained us. It's restrained us. It's compelled us, it fuels us, it leads us, it drives us. What choice do we have? Thank God we've gotten to a place where we know we don't have a choice. So here are seven practices that enable us to rebuild, repair, and restore the city spiritually. These are spiritual practices that we must engage in so that the city may be restored. And this is the same Pattern then that can be used in cities across the earth by different people, eh? If you have any questions, feel free to ask. Now that you need an invitation, I use that as an excuse to just take a sip of coffee, actually. Not all that sincere about you asking questions. But I'm sincere in my answers. Oh, some days coffee tastes so good. Okay, so the first spiritual practice is we must destroy apathy. We must destroy apathy. We must destroy apathy. Apathy, I'll read this definition out twice. It was written by a lady called Dorothy Sayers who used to at one point hang out with C.S. Lewis. Don't think she was a Christian, but anyways. um, I love this definition. Destroy apathy. Apathy is a sin which cares for nothing, seeks to know nothing, interferes with nothing, enjoys nothing, loves nothing, hates nothing, finds purpose in nothing, lives for nothing and only remains alive because there's nothing it would die for. And this can happen to Christians. The problem with Christians is right off the bat we are told that our ticket to heaven is booked. That's the only advantage the JW's have over us. They still have to qualify to get into the highest of heavens. So they strive, they strive, they strive. We are told right off the bat, hey, your salvation is secure, which is the truth, by the way. <laughs> but in the process, apathy can set in, eh? Let me define apathy again. Apathy is a sin which cares for nothing. As in, nothing, nothing is so important that you care for it. Cares for nothing, seeks to know nothing. Um, if I'm sure there are things happening in the world, not too inquisitive. Not too curious. Seeks, seeks to know nothing. Interferes with nothing. Hey, your truth is your truth. My truth is my truth. Let's just live happily ever after. Enjoys nothing. As in doesn't take any great pleasure in any of the things that God puts out here on the earth. Eh? Man, you know, when I go for any event, I'm always surprised at how few Christians there are. It's almost as if the only thing Christians enjoy is uh, worship service and church. And sometimes that ain't enough, man. There's music, there's sports, there's mountains, there's aircrafts, there's burgers, there's dogs, occasionally even cats. I mean, there's so many things that God has made for our pleasure, but why is it that Christians don't necessarily relish them? At some point, we've become so away, we've so pulled ourselves away from the world that... We are not in it anymore, though Jesus wanted it different. Zest, space, light, life belongs to us. Hear me again. Zest, space, light, life belongs to us. It is our God who made it. It's our God who discovered it. It's our God who made us that way. Zest, space, light, life belongs to us. interferes with nothing enjoys nothing loves nothing as in doesn't love anything excessively nor does it hate anything excessively everything with apathy is this absolute place of neutrality finds purpose in nothing lives for nothing other than i'm a christian i will live for the lord I know that's important, but it's not anything more than that. Living for the Lord suddenly exposes you to a whole lot more, right? Lives for nothing. And this last line really bothered me because if this is true of you, then it is a very sad way to live. Lives for nothing and only remains alive because there is nothing it would die for. And only remains alive because there's nothing it would die for. A city that is being ravaged by wild boars, that is being overrun by thorns and thistles, whose citadels and palaces and fortresses are breaking down, uh, uh, whose ruins have become a haunt for um, the hyenas and the jackals and evil spirits. A city like that thrives when the people who have salt in them decide to settle in apathy. Thank God this is not where God has brought us or God is taking us. Ask God to bathe you in passion. Ask God to bathe you or bake you, whichever works for you, in passion. Pray against the dullness of self-preservation. We'll actually pray that pray against the dullness of self-preservation. Self-preservation is when I choose to prioritize my life and my comforts over the commands of Jesus. Self-preservation and all of us engage in it. God gives us self-preservation to keep our lives from harm and danger but what we do is we take that idea of self-preservation and just ramp it up so that self-preservation now becomes where I choose to prioritize my life and its comforts over the commands of Jesus it avoids doing right if doing right will bring me hardship or pain it avoids doing right if doing right will bring me hardship or pain and it justifies that Jesus would never ask me to risk my life that Jesus would never ask me to risk my life so can we pray and destroy this from our lives eh? right now? Destroy this from my life. Every day of the week I struggle with self-preservation. Every day of the week I struggle. I at some point wrestle with self-preservation. And occasionally it wins. Every day. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray for the church. I pray for me. I pray, O oh God, Spirit of God, there is a dullness that comes upon people, upon me, with apathy and self-preservation. It is a, it is a variation of that man who said... Um, I will build barns, I will store my grain, I will take care of my tomorrow. When tomorrow comes, I will do this. When tomorrow comes, I'll do that. When I retire, I will do this. When uh, I have more money, I'll do this. It's this idea of at present, let nothing disturb my present way of living and comfort. I come against that with the sledgehammer of the Holy Spirit and I break in the name of Jesus Christ across this church and across bothers father whenever this message is heard I break in the name of Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit the apathy and the self preservation that I wrestle with every day I break it in Christ's name so that the veil of flesh will no longer prevent me from being all that Christ wants to be through me in this world in this city in the name of Jesus Christ It's sloth. It's laziness. I despise it, oh God. Let this week be different for me. Light, zest, space, life belong to us. I pray that, Father, even if a person is in a wheelchair, oh God, and is not able to be mobile, Father, I just pray, oh God, As something would transpire in our hearts this week, in my heart this week. That no excuse would be good enough to continue dwelling under this dullness. I break it, I break it, I curse it in the name of Jesus Christ. I curse this tree in the lives of people in this church. I curse it in Jesus Christ's name. Dry up from your roots. In Jesus Christ's name, in Jesus Christ's name, in Jesus Christ's name, for your sake and for the sake of each of us, for my sake, oh God, in my life, let it end. Jesus' name. The second spiritual practice, uh, the second thing we have to be aware of spiritually is this name that God has in the bible that you will never hear in a song um, <laughs> or in a prayer and it is it's beer lahai roi beer lahai roi it's from genesis 16 verse 4 genesis 16 verse 4 it's the name that hagar genesis 16 Verse 14, sorry. It is the name that Hagar gave God. And it means the God who hears and sees. Let's just read it. Genesis 16. Genesis 16. Verse 14. Uh, Let's start at verse 13. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You're the God who sees me, for she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. This is why the well was called Bir Lahai Roi. It is still there between Kadesh and Bered. Uh, In the message, she answered God by name, praying to God who spoke to her. You're the God who sees me. Yes, he saw me and then I saw him. That's how the desert spring got the name. God alive sees me. That spring is still there between Kadesh and Bered. Guys, God sees. He's neither blind nor insensitive. God sees. He's neither blind nor insensitive. This is important for us uh, in terms of prayer for the city. God sees. He's neither blind nor insensitive. He sees and hears the clamor of Sodom. He, He sees and hears the clamor of Sodom. And He decrees that sin does have its limits. This is not a God, my God I'm tired of people who uh, just make God out to be someone who has uh, no other side to him other than uh, grace. God is a God full of truth and grace but he knows there are limits on sin. He sees and hears the sound of Sodom in different cities across the earth and he's not insensitive to it. He's a God who sees and hears. I know it is hard to um, uh, have a God who can be on one hand so loving, so full of grace and yet a God who judges. I know it doesn't compute. I know it is not palatable to today's Christianity and to the world outside. We want a God who will never judge, who will never do anything wrong. We want a Joseph Prince kind of a God who is grace, grace, grace and I deliberately took that name. But we have to hold the aspects of God in tension, guys. It is not one or the other, both exist at the same time. He's a God who hears the clamor of Sodom and decrees that there is limits on the sin he will allow. He is a God who likewise sees the oppression of his people in Egypt And determines to put an end to it, even today. This must become important as a spiritual principle in our prayer because sometimes when we lament for a city, we must remember that He is a God who sees. He is a God who sees exploitation and knows that there is a limit to this. And He is a God who hears the cry of His people and says, There is a a a a day of deliverance coming. He's a God who sees oppression and says thus far and no further kings, nobles will be toppled in a day for the stench has risen to my nostrils. You think he doesn't do it now? Why does it say in Galatians 6 that God is not mocked? Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. What a man sows he will reap either to life or to destruction. New Testament scripture By Paul, the author of the grace of God, the gospel of grace. In Revelations, in Judges chapter 6, it's a scene being played out in heaven, but it is pertaining to the earth. When the martyrs in heaven cry out to God in Judges, in Revelation chapter 6, verse 9 to 11, and say to God, Oh God, how much longer? When are you going to judge? How much longer are you going to wait? And God's response strangely is, there are a few more who are going to be killed, who will die for my name's sake. And after that I will judge. And he's talking about the earth. Though though the prayer is in heaven, he's talking about the earth. The reason we need to... uh, Integrate this spiritual principle into our lives is because in a revival there is a time when lament for the city must include this idea of a God who sees and hears and who knows how to judge the oppressor and deliver the oppressed. Otherwise you'll take things into your own hands. The next spiritual practice that we need to embrace with regard to repairing, rebuilding and restoring our city is the idea of wearing body armor. Body armor. I want to take you to Isaiah 59 verse 14 to 17, Isaiah 59 verse 14 to 17. And you'll find that verse 14, 15 and say 14 to 16 is basically the backdrop and a commentary on the condition of um, Jerusalem then and perhaps the condition of uh, uh, every city in the world and Vancouver for instance today. And then verse 17 tells us how to go about dealing with that. Isaiah 59 verse 14. I'm reading from the message. Justice is beaten back, righteousness is banished to the sidelines, truth staggers down the street, honesty is nowhere to be found, good is missing in action, anyone renouncing evil is beaten and robbed. God looked and saw evil looming on the horizon, so much evil and no sign of justice. He couldn't believe what he saw, not a soul around to correct this awful situation. So he did it himself, took on the work of salvation, fueled by his own righteousness. Crazy, eh? And then look at what he does. He wears his body armor. It's it's the imagery of a warrior preparing for battle. And it is perhaps a prototype for Ephesians 6, 12-17, when Paul draws from Old Testament scriptures and presents the armor of God in Ephesians 6. But look at how God dresses up to correct what is happening in the city. Justice is beaten back. Righteousness is banished. Truth staggers. Honesty is nowhere. Good is missing. Um, Anyone renouncing evil is beaten. Evil looms on the horizon. No justice. God could not believe what he saw. Not a soul around to correct the awful situation, which is why he's raised his church. And now the church should robe itself. Wear the same body armor that God does. And so here's the body armor that he dresses up in. He puts on righteousness as in he's asking us to do the same thing. Listen, wear what I wore when I needed to correct a situation. Wear righteousness as your breastplate. As in right standing with me, right standing with yourself and right standing with your neighbor and right standing with your city. Wear it church, wear it. This is... Essential armor for this kind of work. This is that call to holiness again, eh? This is why it's so important. We cannot open ancient doors and gates and we cannot shut down ancient demonic doors and gates till a people walk in this kind of holiness. I'm not even teaching on holiness because it is so a demand that uh, it's basic 101. He puts on righteousness as his body armor then he places a helmet of salvation then he places a helmet of salvation on his head and we are asked to do the same. Always remember the word salvation immediately translated to rescue the helmet of rescue, helmet of salvation of rescue as you have been rescued so I send you out now in the power of the Holy Spirit to rescue others. You have been set apart for Christ so that you can assist him in setting others apart. The helmet of salvation, rescue from physical danger, rescue from death, rescue from sickness and disease, rescue from sin, rescue from the penalty of sin, rescue from false doctrine, rescue from hell. And then the next thing he wears, he clothes himself in robes of vengeance. The kind of vengeance that is meted out to the enemy. Are we talking about the devil? Are we talking about the demonic realm? If you deal with that, then physical obstacles are dealt with too. But a vengeance, there's a vengeance that comes in. And we'll talk about that in the end. And then he cloaks himself with zeal or passion. cloaks himself with zeal or passion because it's impossible to do this without zeal or passion which again destroys apathy and self-preservation. So can we pray for this? So Father, again we come. These are simple prayers that only you can answer. That is why we just turn to you. I pray with sincere hearts right now that across this city, Would you begin with Acts 29 and anyone else who's listening? And could you cloak us, O God? Can you put the breastplate of righteousness in place? It's something you're offering us. Right relationship with you every morning. Right relationship with myself. Zest, space, light, life. Right relationship with my immediate neighborhood. Right relationship with the environment, the city I'm in. The helmet of salvation, knowing that I can be rescued in every situation. Does not matter what awaits, I will be rescued because I have a God who never leaves me nor forsakes me. And this is the God I now proclaim to you. Vengeance upon the enemy so that I may learn how to be aware of the devices of the devil and learn how to destroy the works of the enemy. In the name of Jesus Christ who came down in the flesh to destroy the works of the devil. And finally, a passion and a zeal for people and the city. A passion and a zeal for God and his people. A passion and a zeal for God and the city. We talked about what we are supposed to do or oh God in this city. You talked about it yesterday. A passion and a zeal to take care of the homeless and to rescue those that are caught up and trapped in the sex trade. I only mentioned women yesterday, Father. Sorry about that. There are men, women, and children caught up in it. Holy Spirit, dress us up, please. Dress us up, please. The next one I think is perhaps uh, in our present context, uh, the most important heart condition that we need to develop spiritually. Guys, just as satanic systems, or just as satanic powers ravage cities with systems, just as satanic powers ravage city after city, with their own demonic systems that are very depraved. So we need to build into cities, we need to build into cities that which is precious to God. We need to build into cities, we need to build into our cities, our cities, that which is precious to God, that which is precious to God and therefore precious to us. Satanic systems do that. They build depraved things into cities so that the city is ruined. They build that. Over a period of years, they build that. What about us? Why don't we then build into cities what is precious to God? And one of the things that's always precious to God when it comes to cities. One of the things that's always precious to God when it comes to cities, is this thing called protective hospitality. I tried Googling this word and I kept coming up with PPE. (laughs) (laughs) Personal protective, what's it called? Personal protective equipment, that's all I could get. Uh, Protective hospitality. Protective hospitality. God loves this idea in every city. It's precious to God. It is something that the church is supposed to build into its city. Protective hospitality. You see it in Leviticus 19.34. I'll give you a few scriptures. Leviticus 19.34. I I, I talked about this ages ago. Leviticus 19.34. Um, I'm reading from the message. Treat the foreigner or the alien or the immigrant. Treat the foreigner, the alien or the immigrant the same as a native. Love him like one of your own. Remember that you were once foreigners in Egypt. I am God, your God. This the, the idea of listen. If there is a stranger, if there is a foreigner, if there is an immigrant, if there is someone who is oppressed, if there is someone who hasn't been spoken to for years, so much so that she doesn't even fear being attacked, because at least um, because she's sure no one wants to speak to her like Derek was talking about yesterday. Protective hospitality is the protection that you offer someone out of an extremely hospitable heart so that you draw them in and they are under your protection now. That's what protective hospitality is. God is a God who's always desired this in every city right from when Israel began. Let me give you another scripture. Psalm 23 verse 5. It's it's a brilliant portrayal of God's protective hospitality it says uh, I will prepare a table for you in the presence of your enemies as in yeah I can see your enemies I can see that they are after you but you know what I'm going to do I'm just going to spread out a table for you and I'm going to sit at that table with you now let me see who will touch you in the presence of my enemies I will prepare a six course banquet for you so that they know that one you're at my table and that to get to you they have to get to me. Two, that you're not just at my table, that I consider you as someone I am in fellowship with. Scary thought, man, because all table fellowship in the Old Testament and the New Testament was an intense form of, I now receive you as an equal. Which is why Paul was pretty upset in 1 Corinthians 11, where they would gather at the table of the Lord and would treat each other disparagingly. Let's say another scripture. Mark 14, 6 where Jesus actually turns to his host and to his disciples and says to them, because this woman is crying at his feet and washing his feet with her hair and she's a woman who's a prostitute who's coming from the streets and he says, uh, leave her alone, stop bothering her. What she's doing is a beautiful thing. When the chief guest at a banquet says that about a highly disreputable woman who walks in and does an uh, act that is not at all kosher, everybody else is silent. Protective hospitality ruins your reputation but gives dignity to somebody else. It is in the heart of God for years, man, years. It is the heart of God. Well, uh, the next example I'm going to do you is almost, uh, I mean, a revulsion may rise in your um, um, heart when when I talk about this instance but it is the instance of Lot where um, uh, there are these angels that have come at his door and a a group of men gather to have sex with them and Lot draws them into his house because it's a common practice in all Abrahamic faiths that once one comes into your house now they are under your protection. And no harm will come to them till some harm has already come to you. They will be kept safe. And Lord goes to the extent of saying, Here, I've got two daughters. Use them, abuse them, but you cannot touch these men because they are under my protective hospitality. And in an odd way, it's a portrayal of what the father does with his son. Saying, Nah, you will leave Jacob alone. I have decided to bring him under my protective hospitality. Here, have my son crucify him. But my boy Jacob is now under my protection. Throws out his son, pulls me in. Of all the points I can make today, the point that perhaps God wants to, um, God wants to brand into us, is: Can you? Begin to think like this about your city. And when I say city, I mean the people. Can you allow me to implant in you, to grow in you, the idea of protective hospitality? It becomes something that's very natural to who you are, Jacob. Some of these guys that we don't think much of, because of uh, how we've heard them preached like Lot, uh, who's the not so smart brother of Abraham kind of a thing, or uncle of, uh, I forgot how he's related. Nephew of uh, Abraham. Or you think of, um, uh, you think of Job and you think to yourself, ah Job. That guy just kept lamenting, got God wrong. You think of them and you don't think very highly of them. But when God shows you these uh, vignettes of who they were and what they were doing, you think to yourself, man, I can see how different they were. I mean, look at what is said of Job. Um, Look at what it's said of Job in Job 29. And you'll understand why Uh, Job was one who offered the people in his city protective hospitality, Job was one whose uh, righteous activity became a cloak around him, it was not the righteousness that he wore as a armor, it was now that I've worn righteousness as an armor I'm gonna step out and indulge in these righteous acts and they become a cloak around me Uh, but that's not the point Job 29, Job 29, Job 29 12 to 17 I'm reading from the message Job 29, 12 to 17, from the message. I was known for helping people in trouble and standing up for those who were down on their luck. The dying blessed me and the bereaved were cheered by my visits. All my dealings with people were good. I was known for being fair to everyone I met. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame father to the needy and the champion of abused aliens or immigrants. I grabbed street thieves by the scruff of their neck neck, and made them give back what they've stolen. rest it from NIV. I rescued the poor who cried for help, the fatherless who had none to assist him. The one who was dying blessed me. I made the widow's heart sing. I put on righteousness as my clothing. Justice was my robe and my turban. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy. I took up the case of the stranger. I broke the fangs of the wicked and snatched the victims from their teeth. Beautifully, eh? guys. This is not a ministry. This is the nature of Jesus. We're not doing ministry. Don, uh, can you turn the heat down? Bring it to sixty-eight or something. This is not ministry. This is what a church does during a time like this. We saw yesterday clearly. I I, I was telling somebody last night that uh, yesterday's message was one of the simplest messages I've preached because there was hardly any work to do. It was all there in Isaiah 58. There was nothing to do. This is what you guys are. This is what will happen to you in terms of the revival. This is what you need to do to make this happen. Period. That is all we talked about. Any questions, anybody? I can't hear you. No, 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 I'm sure protective hospitality is a term that exists. I just thought I can Google it and find out some more, but I only got PPE perhaps a year ago I would have gotten something but every time you put protective only equipment comes up yeah I'm sure it's somebody else's word because I used it four years ago and I found it somewhere but I can't find the thing that I found somewhere after four years protective hospitality next one next one is when we think of the city These are spiritual practices. Guys, we populate the heavenly city by weeping, identifying, preaching, and sacrificing for the earthly city. We populate the heavenly city. We populate the heavenly city by weeping. Jesus did that. Luke 13, verse 34. Oh, Jerusalem, oh, Jerusalem, how I've longed to gather you in as a hen gathers her chicks. You, populate the, you can only populate the heavenly city by weeping, uh, marrying, preaching, and sacrificing for the earthly city that you are in. Marry the land, as in, I have a stake in this land. We don't think like that. Eh? Guys, remember um, Acts 17. We have been appointed to certain places, placed within certain boundaries for a certain time so that we may find God. And finding God doesn't stop with being born again. Finding God is finding what else, what else, what else? You're in the city because you were placed in the city for a time such as this. Marry the land, not marry the customs of the land, but have a stake in the land. This is not... Uh, a place that is supposed to serve me. When it comes to Christians, we serve the place we are r- we, w- we are planted in. We serve. It's not why can't the government do this for this? Why aren't they changing this rule? When are the masks going to go? When is it going to be 12 people and not 10? All these are reasonable uh, thoughts, arguments, uh, discussions. But While we are doing that, I I need to pay attention to the fact that Jesus, you have placed me in the city for 27 years now. What have I done for it that has significantly impacted it? And that is bothersome. Not what have I done for the church that I'm pastoring, for the Christians that have heard my brilliant preaching. Or what have you done for the city? As in what have you done for the rest of the people? I I don't feel like I'm going on a guilt trip. I I just think now is the time to ask these questions. It's not like this mask is preventing me from doing anything. For the last 26 years, there was no mask. One of the prayers I want to pray for the next little while is make me aware and available to people throughout the day who need their dignity or their image restored. Make me aware and available to ones who need their image restored. I want to pray that so that it becomes kind of a habit. And uh, I want to read Matthew 25 matthew 25 guys if i ever read from the passion translation it's only after i check the other versions to see if the passion translation is saying the same thing because the pa- passion translation is takes liberties with the translation it is beautiful to read it's ha- touching uh it 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 is it, i would go so far as to say it it may even be of the spirit uh the way it portrays God. But it is still not an accurate translation of the original. So if I ever quote the Passion Translation, it is after I check multiple other scriptures to see whether what is being said has the same meaning. And then the reason I choose it if, if and when I choose it is because it conveys what it needs to beautifully. So I'm gonna read this next scripture from the Passion Translation. It's Matthew 25, verse 34 on 34 to 40. Matthew 25 verse 34 to 40. Matthew 25 verse 34 to 40. This is why I'm asking God Father could you uh, make me both aware and then available during the day to people who may need dignity dignity restored or the image of God restored to them Uh, could you please make me more aware and available? Um, Because I'm usually not. If it happens, it's because it's staring me in the face, not because I've been particularly aware of it. So here's what it says. Then the king will turn to those on his right and he will say, you have a special place in my father's heart. Come and experience the full inheritance of the kingdom realm that has been destined for you from before the foundation of the world. For when you saw me hungry, you fed me. When you found me thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I I had no place to stay, you invited me in. When I was poorly clothed, you covered me. When I was sick, you tenderly cared for me. When I was in prison, you visited me. Then the godly will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty and give you food and something to drink? When did we see you with no place to stay and invite you in? When did we see you poorly clothed and cover you? When did we see you sick and tenderly care for you or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, don't you know? When you cared for one of the least important of these, my little ones, my true brothers and sisters, you demonstrated love for me. So, Jacob, why are we shifting like this to doing things that we haven't done for the last 16 years uh, on a regular basis? Because this is part of how God brings a revival across the earth and in cities. Isaiah 58, go and listen to yesterday's teaching. To bring the kind of 58-12 revival, we engage in the 58-12 fasting. And the 58-12 fasting has two components. A personal, an attack on personal sin and an assault on injustice in cities. We cannot take care of all the ills in our neighborhood or in our city, but we can definitely put our hands and our hearts to the thing that God puts his finger on. And in our case, it's caring for the homeless and rescuing those that are trapped or caught up or um, unable to get themselves out of the sex trade. And as we do that, darkness will come. light will come into darkness Dry ground will be watered and springs will flow from there. Bones will be strengthened. The righteousness and the glory of God will begin to surround you. There were three more. Um, You'll be called repairers and restorers of the breach. Two more, I don't remember. Amy Grant, I once wrote a song in 1979. I know that's before uh, three quarters of the church was born. I think other than Mike, most of us were born after that. But uh, Amy Grant wrote this song uh, called The Father's Eyes. And uh, I have it on my phone. I've always loved the song. It says, eyes that find the good things. When good thing, eyes that find the good in things. When good is not around, eyes that find the source of help. When help just can't be found. Eyes full of compassion, seeing every pain. Knowing what you're going through and feeling it the same. She's got her father's eyes. Her father's eyes Her father's eyes She's got her father's eyes Love that song, man. She's got her father's eyes. I'd love that for myself. Two more things to go. The next thing we have to deal with spiritually is mammon mammon is the wealth that gives us security mammon this revival will create opportunities for the church of Jesus Christ to challenge the church of mammon this revival will give us opportunities will create opportunities for the church of Jesus Christ to challenge the church of mammon The Church of Mammon is already at work trying to secularize our faith. It's already at work. You know, I was having a discussion with Chad some days ago and we were talking about the fact that however the mark looks when people take it on their foreheads and their forehands, I'm not trying to figure out what the mark is and what the mark looks like. All I'm saying is that We in the West are so secularized in our faith because of money, wealth, security, and our uh, justification of it that we have primed our foreheads for the mark. In the sense, we will continue to buy and sell because it is so critical to our existence in the West that we will come up with justifications to go along and not be persecuted. But that's a separate topic that we'll talk about another day. But uh, the Church of Jesus Christ will find ample opportunity during this time of revival. Acts 29 will find ample opportunity to challenge the Church of Mammon. The Church of Mammon exploit, uh, let's not call it the Church of Mammon. You might actually think it's some guy from India who started a church, cause there is a uh, name in India called Mammon. Uh, so I don't want you to think like that. So yeah, so uh, Mammon exploits for gain at any cost. Mammon exploits for gain at any cost. We empty uh, what we have for others at any cost. This is a difference, and I pray that this revival uh, gives us opportunities. And there are people at Acts 29, guys, you don't know how generous a church this is. How generous a church this is. Chantal and Heidi can give you actual figures, but this is one of the, for the size of this church and for the jobs that people hold, this is one of the most generous churches I've experienced. There's never a lack of money and the only reason there is never a lack of money is because there is never a lack of generosity. Heidi doesn't sleep on pillows that have money appearing in them in the middle of the night. At least last time I checked, she said, no, hasn't happened for a while. The point being (laughs) that there is no lack because this has been a super generous church and I pray God that we see miracles when it comes to things pertaining to money, miracles. Fish in your freezer. You keep serving it and the fish keeps appearing. I'm giving you real life stories. So much so that you name the fish, you call him Simon or something. Let's have Simon out for dinner. But we had him yesterday, go check the freezer. Oops, he's there again. We only have two loaves. My God, how are we gonna feed Don, Derek, and Praful with two loaves? Let's just pray and it multiplies. Oh, and Sheldon, we need a lot of loaves then. The point being this, guys. Times of revivals are times where you see miracles of money, and it defeats mammon. It defeats mammon. We realize that mammon will exploit for gain at any cost while we keep emptying ourselves, and the more we empty ourselves, the more appears. Mammon uses money to exert power, Mammon uses money to exert power. L- I love this line, uh, and uh, for once I can claim uh, ownership. Uh, mammon, <laughs> you ca- uh, Guys, there's no copyright on any truth from God, eh? Whenever you hear anything preached in this church, take it, use it, make it yours, it belongs to you because it belongs to your father. Um, mammon uses money to exert power. We use money to exude grace. Mammon uses money to exert power. I have money, I will use it to exert power. But we use money to exude or to to pour out grace. Use money to pour out grace. Use money to show grace to people. Money is a powerful, amoral um, commodity that we can use to show grace. To show grace. Use it to your advantage. To show grace. Let it be, it's okay to be exploited. A friend from many, many, many years ago, turned up recently, actually emailed the church address. I was so thrilled to find him. Little knowing that it was an attempt to get some money. So what? Exude grace. Use money to exude grace. Because the world uses... Money to exert power, to exert dominance, to puppeteer. And then use money. The the, the world uses money to hedge in and to keep out. I have this much money, you don't have it, so you stay there and I will stay here. This hedges me in, this keeps you out. We use money to make friends. We use money to make friends. There's that um, um, parable of the unjust steward. Jesus commanded him. For using money to make friends. Make money to use friends. Sorry, make, make, (laughs) (laughs) use money to make friends. Make money to use friends. (laughs) Oops, true colors are coming out. No, (laughs) make money, make friends using money. Yeah, make friends using money. Cool, last one. The last one is... uh, I know what it is. I'm just checking to see what I titled it. Yes. Spiritual strongholds. Spiritual strongholds. Spiritual strongholds in the city need to be dealt with spiritually. Spiritual strongholds in the city need to be dealt with spiritually. Spiritual strongholds in the city need to be dealt with spiritually. In this city, there are spiritual powers and uh, in this city, spiritual powers operate um, like this, there's, um, there's, the, uh, th- there's one set of powers that are the public face. There's one set of powers that are the public face of the city, uh, and so they are dominant. And uh, see, one of the things that, when I talk about spiritual strongholds and spiritual powers in this city, um, I cannot name names, will not name names, because of the fact that uh, this uh, is live streamed and it's heard over and over again in different parts. Uh, But I'm just explaining the dynamics of it, and then later we can talk about the specifics in a way that is more private. So, when it comes to spiritual strongholds, in this city, there are spiritual powers. There are ones that posture as the public face of it, ones that posture as the public face uh, or the uh, the front facade, and then behind it are a host of, uh, uh, is a violent horde violent horde of powers, a violent horde of powers that are strangling the city and its people, that are strangling the city and its people. Guys, this is not uncommon. (laughs) This is not uncommon. In many, many cities across the world, what happens is the church's focus on what seems most obvious. And it is not that these are not powerful, but behind this are violent hordes of powers that are strangling the city and its people. So we have to deal with both. We have to deal with this, but we also have to deal with this. So we've known this now for about eight months and have been praying and restraining these powers for the last eight or nine months, sometimes going to very specific places in this city and um, uh, literally doing uh, walks around certain places and um, praying strongly against things that have had a stranglehold on the city for a while. Recently, someone who's not part of Acts 29 um, was uh, just praying in a certain place and they texted me and they said um, that they were praying at a certain place and all this is anecdotal so again I'm not saying take it with a pinch of salt but take it as obviously not scripture. So they were praying at a place and they saw a wall on which there was a mural that was painted that portrayed a certain power. So they were sitting in their car praying and they saw a wall that portrayed a certain power and then as they looked they found just a big slab of cement with the words F-I-T-H on it and uh, as soon as they uh, texted me and told me this I was quite thrilled eh? because it encouraged me a lot that my godfather sometimes you can pray again and again and again and you don't think nothing is happening. and Then someone sends you a vague thing like this that I was sitting and praying. I saw a wall, on the wall was a certain power that was painted almost like a mural and I saw a slab of cement on the ground and on it it said F-I-T-H. And the cool thing about F-I-T-H, and I don't know whether they know it, is F-I-T-H stands for fire in the hole. And a fire in the hole is what happens uh, when... Someone is detonating a building. They put up this um, sign saying "Fire in the hole." It's a warning that an explosive detonation in a confined space is imminent. A warning that a, <laughs> that, a <laughs> that a that an explosive detonation in a confined space is imminent. Uh, I felt that I must share this in this teaching because, partly because. Um, I'm okay sharing things with Acts 29, partly because in the future, maybe someone will benefit from this in some city, somewhere. Guys, our prayers bring results, see? And God sends little images like this to say, hey, keep on, what you're doing in terms of praying and restraining powers, breaking their hold upon the city is waiting for, I've already put up a sign saying there's a fire in the hole, a warning that an explosive detonation in a confined space is imminent. Let me end with how do we as a church get involved in praying against strongholds in praying against spiritual powers and this is important eh so pay attention because sometimes towards the end of a teaching uh, you begin to um, switch off don't so the time has come for prayer. people ask me hey, shouldn't revivals be Uh, things that have prayer involved in them. When are we going to pray? When are we getting together to pray? I know prayer is important and I know the time for prayer is almost upon us. But in real warfare, prayer is not indiscriminate. In real warfare, prayer is not indiscriminate. And this is super important. eh? In real warfare, prayer is not indiscriminate. Gathering together and praying, let me assure you, does not always do good. It's a very Christian churchy practice. But indiscriminate prayer can sometimes harm. So, what do you mean by that? Guys, when it comes to praying in real warfare, it's based on weight class. As in, whenever you go, uh, I mean, uh, if I go beat up Isaiah or um, Phoebe. I'll win every time man, they're not my weight class. But if you put me up against Kamal or uh, uh, Bishop, then maybe I might get a few blows in and they might win. But the point is, you cannot punch above your weight class. And so when it comes to praying in actual spiritual warfare, you have to know your weight class and You have to know, uh, you have to figure out whether you do wear your armor uh, or or, or whether the armor has become so natural to you that uh, the way I think, the way I walk in righteousness, uh, the shield of faith have become quite natural to us. This is a constant process. It's not like This will ever end. It's not like someone ever reaches a place where they know how to deal with this. But these are things that one needs to consider, which is why I've been hesitant to just launch into prayer for the revival. And and I know that it is the right way to go about it. The third thing is swordsmanship. How how fluid are you as you um, weave in and out of the word? How well do you wield the word of God? It is your offensive weapon. How well do you wield it? How well do you wield it? Swordsmanship is important. It's not that we cannot engage in prayer. But my question is, which place do we engage in prayer? All of us can't engage at the same place. That's what I meant by weight class. Swordsmanship. How about purity? Purity is critical if you want to open the ancient doors and gates and shut down demonic, ancient demonic doors and gates. Without purity it is not possible. It's not possible. Because it is my purity that gives me it like I've used this line thousands of times, really, must, must be a thousand times now, or maybe nine ninety-eight. But um, purity is proof of my intimacy with God and it intimidates the enemy. Purity is proof of my intimacy with God, and it is the intimacy with God, it is my intimacy with God that intimidates the enemy. Next one order and formation. Do you know how to walk in order and in formation? Or do we have a tendency to go off on our own like Jonathan did with his armor bearer? Do we know how to walk in order and formation? If I'm given a task in prayer, can I stick with it? Divine strategy. Do I know how to hear God when he says, hey, circle around the mulberry bushes uh, and go attack them from the rear as he did in 2 Samuel 5.23 when David asked him, how shall I attack? God says, go around behind those bushes. Do I I know how to um, take a divine strategy and then go about it? Next one. Have I already had experiences with lions and bears? As in First Samuel uh, 17, where David says to Saul, I can, I believe, take on Goliath because I've already dealt with lions and bears. What about weaponry? What am I adept at using? Is it the prophetic? Is it uh, declarations? Is it decrees? Is it... Um, uh, sometimes money which rebukes the devourer. What is the weaponry that I know how to use? In 2 uh, Samuel uh, 23, towards the end, David makes a statement when he's talking about the sons of Belial, which is just, w- w- just depraved wickedness. And he says, some of these things can only be touched with a spear or a shaft. One should not use one's hands to touch it. Use a spear or a shaft. So the point being, what am I adapted? Do I just take what is given to me or do I use my sling and my five stones? What about authority? What is it that I've been appointed to? All of us have authority in Christ, but we have certain things appointed to us to deal with. Nobody has authority in a classroom like a teacher. Doesn't matter that the pastor turns up. The teacher has authority there. What is it that I've been appointed to? Where God says, hey, you've got sufficient clout here. You can take liberties. Because I've appointed this to you. And then there's the idea of Courage. Courage. Do I have the courage required to kind of know that God is saying, hey, if you want to do this, if you've got the guts, go. This is what the mighty three did when all that David said was, man, I'm thirsty. And the three (laughs) had the courage to go through enemy territory to get water from a particular well that David just happened to muse saying, I wish I could drink from this particular well. And they had the courage to go get water from it. All these things, guys, work in tandem. And so every one of us can engage in prayer. Every one of us can engage in prayer in real-time spiritual warfare. But we have to know which place we stand in to engage and that is something I have to be careful of because this is how we can ensure that everyone fights but everyone comes home safe, victorious, unharmed. Everyone fights but we have to find out ways to make sure that everyone who fights comes home safe, victorious, unharmed. Never fun coming back from a battle and people are missing. People are hurt. People are discouraged. People are so filled with fear that they'll never attempt it again. People don't win. And you've got far too many scars. It's okay to have battle scars but not the kind of scars that cripple you from wielding something. And this is why we need to take time before we pray. And even when we pray, that at times we'll have to have, we'll have to say, you too can pray about this. You too can pray about this. You too can pray about this. Because we learn throughout our lives to walk like this. So the question you may raise is, so where am I at? How, how, do, how do I know where I'm at? How do I know whether I'm good at this or good at that? It's never a question of am I good at it or good or not good at that. It is this idea of I'll keep growing in these. And God will either put me in a situation where I have to now show the kind of muscle I've developed or God will ask Jacob or whoever is in charge to put me in a situation so they can, I can prove my metal. It's not a question of where am I at. It is a question of it doesn't matter where I'm at. When I'm called, I'll be ready to the point that I'm ready at right now. And I'm trusting God and trusting the ones that lead me to put me in the right place at the right time. Never try to measure this because it is all invisible and spiritual. I don't measure this. So it doesn't matter whether you're a voluntary firefighter who... Um, I mean it doesn't matter whether you're an elite commando or whether you're a voluntary firefighter, there's a dog stuck in a tree, Um, well then go get the dog down. Uh, By the way, cats never get stuck in trees. Cats just climb up trees and then they have you stuck at the bottom waiting for all kinds of things to happen. Cats never get stuck in trees. They just get people stuck. And then they jump into your arms and start purring because they don't know they have nine lives anyways. Sorry, that's a complete detour. (laughs) Sorry, I have to get over this thing with cats, man. Yeah. The only solution may be to get a cat. Let's do that for my 60th birthday. Give me a cat as a gift. and I'll give you months and months of probation, <laughs> okay? So uh, we, don't, we don't ask where are we at, we, we just respond. So be it something as um, crazy as uh, taking down some great power or be it as simple as getting a cat down from a tree. We just keep growing in this and whatever we are asked to, we step up and do. And faithfulness is always what expands domain. Faithfulness is always what expands domain. Faithfulness is always what expands domain. Things are multiplied to you. Things are increased for you. You're given charge over more because you're faithful over what you presently have. And then as you go into situations, it is always slightly beyond you. Therefore, your reliance is not on your strength that your reliance is always on God because whatever you deal with spiritually in warfare is always beyond what you thought you had strength for. You will never fight anything that is your size. If all your battles and all your faith exploits over the last one year have been things that you have been dealing with, that have been dealt with in the past, it means something ain't working right. It always has to be beyond, it has to push you, stretch you, pull you beyond anything you have ever experienced. Cool.